Welcome to the Founders Journey podcast. Uh, my name is Peter Dean. Uh, I'm one of the co-hosts. Um, our goal is to interview some interesting founders and share some actionable tips on leading a startup and their personal stories behind the Founders Journey. Um, I'm what some people have called a serial entrepreneur. I've funded three companies. Uh, I founded three companies in my journey, funded two of them. Um, in the last the last one being Rem Tribe, uh, we're a customer acquisition agency that builds go-to-market strategy and executes on behalf of funded B2B SaaS software companies. Uh, we've had the pleasure of being part of multiple SaaS customers, uh, companies' journeys over the past 13 years uh, in growth. Um, our guest today is my co-host, Greg Moran. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Evergreen Equity, uh, Mountain Equity Partners, uh, they're a venture fund focused solely on future of work technologies. Um, he was the founder of a company called Outmatch, now called Harvard, a global leader in talent selection for some of the most successful companies in their industries. So, Greg, welcome. Thanks. Thanks. Good to um, good to be here. This is a fun format that we have for our first two podcasts. If you missed the first one, it was me interviewing Peter. Now Peter's interviewing me, and then. Uh, the entire podcast will not be us just talking to each other. However, <laughs> we're just thought it'd be a fun way to kind of get started, and uh, so everybody can get a chance to know us before we start uh, bringing other guests on the show. So glad to be uh, glad to be on the other side of the table now. Yeah, Greg. So um, again, we joked last time about us talking on, uh, and so um, we'll try to keep this to uh, forty minutes or so, um, but. And you have a lot, you've done a lot over the, the years you've been doing, you've been a founder. Uh, so how many companies have you been a founder in? Exactly. Uh, four. Um, technically are the ones that I've founded, I've been involved in other ones, you know, from an investor and things like that. But um, but four that I actually found, the first one, um, first one was pretty much right out of college. Um, in the executive search and staffing space, um, had that business for uh, for a number of years. Uh, I think I was probably about five, six years or so. Um, this is back in the uh, back in the late '90s, and then into the early 2000s, um, and uh, and had a couple, you know, after after that point. So um, yeah, so it's uh, it's four, three of them. Three of them actually went somewhere. One of them, uh, one of them was a debacle that I lost a bunch of money and walked away because <laughs> because of all kinds of problems. Um, but uh, but three of them were great. So so kind of okay. what I've seen, like over the years talking to you, um, there's kind of two. Like I want to talk about two things. One is like pre-checked slash outmatch. Harbor, and there's an interesting reason why that you have three different names for the same company that kind of grew over time uh, significantly, and then um, like pre-checked uh, out match. Um, so, um, why don't you talk about People Answers? Um, that is a company that was an assessment company bought by Infor. Um, so, pretty pretty successful company. And, and what your part was in that? Yeah, so I mean, I'll start. I'll start that one actually. Right, even in the business before that, um, that's the executive search and staffing business, and we had grown that business, uh, you know, pretty significantly. So this is going to date 
both me and you, Peter, but, um, and I think probably a lot of people that are listening to this probably weren't even alive at this point or, or in, in elementary school, but um, this has been the dot-com boom in the late 90s and then uh, Y2K. Um, and we were doing IT staffing, which was huge boom market. Um, it was a brilliant place to be in the late 90s, uh, 2000, 2001. Um, and it really, uh, you know, took a massive hit in around, uh, you know, 2001 after 9-11 and, um, and it kind of in the, the world went into really a global recession. And um, so that business, uh, while it was a rocket ride on the way up, it came down pretty, pretty hard. Um, but during that business, we were looking for, uh, we were hiring a lot of recruiters and a lot of salespeople. We were up to about 50 people, I guess, internally. And we were having a lot of the same, we were a staffing firm, we were having a lot of the same challenges that our clients were, which was we we're having a hard time getting people to, to perform and stay. So we started using assessments um, as, a, as part of our hiring process. And I became really interested in that space um, because I saw what it was doing for us. But at the time, it was not scalable at all, right? So you'd have a candidate like fill out some sort of a, a sheet and you would fax it back to an industrial psychologist and then they would like fax you a report that you didn't understand. Um, so, you know, there, there clearly had to be a better way to do that, but the results, you know, were pretty amazing when, when you're looking at it from a staffing standpoint. Um, so exit out of that business and was looking around and stumbled across through a mutual, through kind of a friend of a friend, a company called People Answers down in, based down in Dallas. And I was living in New York at the time. And, um, and they um, had commercialized basically what was a SaaS, what we would now refer to as a SaaS technology, but this was before SaaS was a thing, right? So this is 2007, or I guess, no, actually probably about 2001 timeframe, 2002. And uh, what they had done is they basically taught a machine to think like an industrial psychologist. So, you know, it really made assessment scalable across a large organization. So, you know, you could be assessing thousands and thousands of hires a year um, and, you know, the reports are automatically generated and there was some pretty, um, pretty, uh, you know, great information you're getting back about whether you make a hire or not. And that's, that was the inception of people answers got, um, got really, uh, interested in it. Um, and, uh, with, uh, with my business partner at the time, who now kind of fast forward 20 years and is my business partner again, and Evergreen Mountain Equity Partners, which are a venture firm, um, we uh, started commercializing that technology. And uh, it was an interesting model that we had. We, 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 we had the distribution rights to that product, but didn't own the IP. Um, so we were essentially an outsourced sales organization carrying the same business card and everything else that the, that the parent company was, but we're building that up. Um, grew it really nicely. Uh, sold it back to the parent company because we sold distribution rights back to people answers themselves. And they uh, ultimately went on and um, did a, a really was a groundbreaking transaction in the SaaS space at that point um, with Infor back in 2014. So nice, really nice win. I had exited out of that business around 2007 to start checked and which we'll talk about, I'm sure in a, in a couple minutes, yeah. but, um, but yeah, that business was, uh, was a terrific Terrific business, still around today, um, still part of Infor, um, and uh, and doing well. So, would you say they were most more successful without you after you left? Oh yeah, there's absolutely no, <laughs> there's no doubt about. It. There's a, 
there's a clear correlation between my departure and the trajectory of. Uh, and so why did why did your partner come back and become a partner with you again? <laughs> You'd have to ask. Him. I'm just that's, a, that's yeah. another podcast. <laughs> I'm joking, but Greg has this way of staying friends with everyone, even if he creates a competitor for them, and that's a good segue <laughs> into checked. Um, how did check start, and what what was that all about? And then we'll talk about a very specific time that you started it. Your, your timing is like impeccable. Yeah. You'll notice a pattern um, of this. I think in my career where um, I have this, I have this real unique ability to, to start businesses or exit businesses at the worst possible moment um, in time. And so, so, you, so you left, you left people answers. They became wildly successful and executed <laughs> an exit. Yeah. Yeah, it was time Great. to start now, something new. So we had uh, so we had started uh, started a company called Checked.com. This is back yep. in um, around 08. And what Peter's joking about is we literally incorporated Checked on the day that Lehman Brothers went under, which was really the, I mean, it was like the global financial crisis was like this was like the apex of the financial crisis, <laughs> and we're out trying to raise money for this software company. And, you know, we're talking to investors and investors are like, you, you can't be serious, right? Like, I'm, I can't even keep money in a bag. I'm like literally burying my money in a garbage bag in my yard. And you want me to invest in your startup. And it was bad. I mean, we, we ended up. Um, That's one word for it. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. We ended it was up like in a desert of capital. Yeah. If, if, if capital is water, we're in a desert with absolutely no water. Yeah, and I mean, you, you you literally had VC firms going out of business, which is almost unheard yeah. of. But you know, it it's was amazing. it was actually happening, and you know, redemptions were were out of control. I mean, it was just really yeah. bad. So, you know, but the the technology that we were commercializing in that business was really unique. And my entire career has been spent around HR technology, work technology, like future of work. Yeah, and this was another um, technology there where we were commercializing technology that basically was applying assessment logic. So the same type of assessment from like a pre-employment, uh, same type of logic from like a pre-employment assessment. Right. But in this really, really niche place in the screening process of reference checking. So essentially yeah. the way it worked is, uh, is a reference, instead of getting a phone call and saying, hey, what do you think of Peter? Would you hire him? A reference was taking an assessment about the candidate. Now take a reference like 30 seconds to take this thing, really light assessment, but you got some really incredible intel back um, to help make a, to help make a, more and decision. from what I experienced with it, because I'd used it, um, a lot more truthful, like a lot, like when you call a reference and you ask, mm -hmm. Hey, what did you think of Peter? They're going to be like, uh, he's great. I don't yeah. want to get in the way of him getting hired. Not but like constructive feedback. That's like, he's, he's not really good at accounting. It's very right. bad at that. And if it's for accounting, then that's not a good idea, right? You know, well, like you're not going to get people to say that. Like, when right? You talk I mean, to what them, actually got was real. I mean, you you got what was real, balanced information about it about a person, which is ultimately what you're looking for, right? It's not necessarily a matter of like a good reference check or bad reference check, although we get yep. some of those too. But what you'd also what you'd often find out about ten or fifteen percent of the time, you would find out that the person is just not a good fit for the job. And you never get that kind of information from a reference check. So we it, we were incorporating technology around uh, around that. 
Um, in the vein of our impeccable timing, not only were company, not only could you not raise capital, companies were laying off in droves and not hiring anybody. So those yeah, we also had yeah. that going for us as well. Um, so we we drip fed that business for probably um, you know we we did actually happen we did raise capital but we raised little bits of capital at a time um, and really spent the next two years um, d- just developing the technology before we really started to commercialize it because there truly for probably the first eighteen months of that business there truly was not a market you could not sell any product like that. Um, so we took that time to build it and we brought in just enough money to keep the thing going. And um, finally, around 2010, 2011, the, 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 you know, the market started to shift um, and we were, you know, we were able to start actually bringing, you know, bringing a commercial uh, product out there and uh, in the business, the business started to, started to grow and uh, it started to what become successful. What do you think your breakthrough was? Was it like certain customers bought from you? Like what were some of your breakthroughs that you transitioned? Because and that's a tough story to sell to an investor. We've kind of had like enough money and you you really right. had a couple customers like Disney. How do you get them? Yeah. Disney. How do you get to that um, next one? We got, you know, so our market was large enterprise customers. Uh, that we were selling to. And, you know, up until that point, we had small companies that were using it, but we weren't, you know, we weren't generating a ton of revenue. And then it's actually a pretty funny story. It gets even funnier when you find out I actually ended up acquiring this other business. But we, um, back around, I guess it was probably around 2012 or so, we were just starting to get a little bit of attraction, but with smaller companies. And one day we get a phone call from, Disney. And uh, they were looking for a reference checking product and had heard about us and um, wanted to start using us. The funny part of that story is our largest competitor was a company called Checkster. We were checked.com. Disney called the wrong company. They had us confused with Checkster and ended up buying from us. Um, now, if you fast forward that story a number of years, we ended up acquiring Checkster within Outmatch. We'll get to that, but um, but uh, which right. you know, I, I think their CEO uh, of Checkster, who's uh, become since become a good friend of mine. I, I'm not sure if uh, Yves is listening. I still don't know if he thinks that story is funny or not. But um, but I think it's hilarious. <laughs> so and the that's more you know, of the look, story is serendipity, right? Your... Like when you're when you're dealing with a when you're starting a. You know, you're involved in a startup. So much of this stuff is just pure uh, serendipity, luck. right? You, 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 you just stumble across an opportunity, and for whatever reason, it it clicks. Landing them, we you got just that logo, to, and and that that's what made us kind of legitimate. Um, you, you just have to have a name that's close to your competitor, <laughs> and maybe yeah. they'll call the wrong person. That's right. That's that's in. exactly that's the, that was the strategy all along. Um, yeah. So Perfect. yeah, we. Um, we brought them in and it was, that's really what got us going, right? It was, it was Disney. And then we, we expanded that business. We, we acquired a, a an assessment, a, a, you know, a, a pre-employment assessment that, yep. uh, um, and eventually, and then we landed Subway and Disney and Subway became our marquee clients. And at that point we were able to grow because we could grow just yep. on their names. Right. Which is, which is the way that startups often, you know, startups often work. Um, yeah, and uh, and we were able to grow just by 
saying that they're clients. They immediately gave us the credibility that we need. And that probably was really important for your next funding round to kind of keep things going, given the fact that you were kind of piecemealing it together at the time. Yeah. I mean, when, certainly... when was your like first real A round that you would say was an A round? Because I know you had like you had like survival rounds. Yeah. And in, in to a point. And then at what point do you would, would you actually say you had an A round? And you kind yeah, of we were rounds? we were we were doing a lot of um, we had a number of different angel rounds, right? Like convertible yep. rounds that we had a number of angel investors um, involved in. The first institutional round, which I would say, I think by today's yep. standards, you wouldn't really call it an A round, but... but Right, but back then it was. Back then really. it was. Um, yep. Was, uh, you know, it was around probably 2013 or so. Um, it was Rand Capital um, out of... Right. Uh, out of Buffalo, New York, and Cayuga Ventures, um, which is part of Cornell, um, yep. affiliated with Cornell uh, out of Ithaca, New York. They were our first institutional investors, um, right. and uh, and that's what you know that's what gave us kind of the the growth capital that we needed to to keep going. Great. So, so you had checked. It starts growing, and then. Uh, you kind of get in that next stage, right? You're kind of close to a B, you're growing, you're getting success. Um, then what did you do? And this, this to me is really interesting because you had a company that was talking to you about acquiring you. Yeah. This and then something totally flipped on its, it, it, some very different thing happened. Yeah. This was borderline insane. Um, so during the time, when People Answers was getting acquired by Infor, um, yep. I got to know, even though I wasn't involved in the business anymore, I, I got to know a lot of the private equity um, firms that were bidding on them before Infor ultimately won the, won the sale process. And one of them just became a buddy of mine. Um, we just stayed close. And uh, he was a private equity guy out of the Bay Area. And... Um, you know, and he had said to me one day, hey, you know, we should do something together if we can find, we checked was too small for them to fund. But he said, right. if we could find something larger that we can do together one day, let's, you know, I'd love to do it. Um, I had a company down in Dallas that was calling us trying to acquire us. The problem was we were growing at north of 100% a year. They were growing not not much, right? Yeah, small percent. It, right. Yeah, except- More of like a lifestyle business, very profitable. It was a, te- a tech-enabled service. Um, very profitable in our direct competitor, but um, they were about four times our size. So what ended up happening was, um, you know, they had been trying to acquire us and it didn't make sense for us, right? Because we were the high growth. They were the slow growth. Yep. Um, culturally, real it's mismatch. It's not probably a good, it's not what you'd think would be a good acquisition for no, a company like except, you at the time. Yeah. Right, except we had really cutting edge technology, they had great clients. And so just at a random conversation with one of my board members, um, who will be a, a guest on the podcast soon, um, we had, uh, he, you know, one of our board members had said to me, um, why don't we acquire them? And I, I didn't think that was a thing, right? I mean, I, I, we're, you know, yeah. we're doing a couple million in revenue. They're doing like close to 10. How, how do you do something like that? Yep. And he had said, look, I mean, we basically model the thing out and 
um, let's talk to some investors, you know, some potential uh, investors who might be willing to do this. And I had my buddy, Eric, um, who had was the private equity guy out in, out in the Bay Area who had said to me, hey, let's do, look at something larger. And I called up Eric and I said, I have a completely insane idea. What do you, you know, here's what it looks like. And Eric said, I'm in. And, you know, we needed to then go try to convince the found the, the leadership of, um, of the, the other company, company who's trying to buy us. To say, yeah, hey, they, by the way. Well, they thought we were crazy, right? And, and yeah. the first question out of their mouth is, how are you going to pay for this? And, you know, fortunately, we did have somebody lined up. And, um, you know, and it, what sounded crazy in the beginning didn't seem so crazy. And, and they... And- they said, okay, because they were a little frustrated by their growth too, right? And they had been in it for eight or yeah. nine years and wanted to get out. Yeah. And, um, the timing made sense. And uh, so, you know, it took us a, a few months, but we actually closed that transition and acquired a company down in Dallas called Assess Systems. They were, yeah. here we were, right? We're a New York-based startup that at this point is like three years old. They were a basically a consulting business that had some technology that was literally like 30 years old. And many of the employees there had been there since inception. Yeah. I mean, the culture differences were enormous. Um, Yeah. I want to get to that in a minute. So one thing I I just want to make a comment first, that was the first time I had ever heard of this. It sounded very crazy to me and pulled it off. And I was like, that's amazing. but I've seen that happen since then. The same thing has happened again. So one of the things that I've learned is you should never let the traditional approach affect your idea of what could happen. Um, that's cool. something you've always kept open. Um, and the other theme that I'm seeing is you've always fostered relationships with people, regardless of where it and like kept an open relationship with all these people in the industry and you were very early with creating relationship with private equity when you were really weren't a company ready for them. And that was, right. I think, a huge benefit to you in everything you did after. Uh, yeah. We can talk about. Yeah. You know, I think, look, I think a lot of founders <clears throat> um, in smaller stage companies tend to become very insular and, and, you know, think of funding rounds as like, okay, I got to go raise this round. Then what I'm is stop today? And I go right. Raise this other round. And I think one of the things that we, um, did well and tried to do, and something I really try to encourage founders to do today is develop relationships at all level of that funding cycle, right? So even though you don't, even though you're not ready for, you know, the the big round today, maybe start to develop those relationships because the more you know them, first of all, you never know what opportunities are going to come your way, like the one we just mentioned. And the other thing is you also, you don't, it just takes time, right? You want to have that relationship and you want that funding round to be a natural thing because if you can just continue to update your story and build those relationships, that's something we always did. I they think can watch is, your journey, right? Like they've totally. watched you and that instead of you just going to them at this stage, you're like, great, you are X revenue, you you have growth and you're a brand new entity to them. They've also watched you. They're like, wow, I remember when you were at 1 million you know, AR, now right. you're at five. That was two years ago. That's pretty impressive. That's right. You've got my attention. They're listening to you. 
Yep. You're definitely farther down the stage than a company that's just saying, hey, I have 5 million ARR. Like, well, what is your story? And then you have to credit tell that in a pitch. Totally. And that's the, and I think that's the thing. And I think the other thing that, you know, I, I tell founders all the time is develop industry relationships, like with, uh, with your competitors, like, yeah, you know, and I get this question all the time, like, well, how do you do that? You, you send them an email and ask them to talk or you call yeah, them. Call like, them. Yeah, it, it's amazing, right? But, but here's the thing, like you have to be open, right? You have to be willing to share your information. The more open and transparent you are with your own data, the more they're going to be with you. And I think that's what yeah. would help in this situation. There was some trust that was already built. Yeah. Um, that, so let's talk about um, people can reach out to you and ask how the heck you did that. Um, I'm sure you're willing to share. Like, sure, let's absolutely. talk about, we talk, We just talked about, you did this crazy funding, new thing, new idea. Now you have a new company of 25-year-old employees and you know, been with the company for 25 years or more and a kind of lean, fast-moving startup coming together in one entity. Like, what was that like? I know that question is very loaded because there's <laughs> many conversations that you can have oh, about man. that. But like, um, just how, like, how did that, like, what was it year one? What, what did that tur- feel? Turbulent, I guess is <laughs> the word I would use. You know, we, we were very different, I think. Um, but, you know, what I think it, when we look at that, it, it, when trying to bring two companies together, I was also the CEO of this, right? That, you know, of this smaller company ended up buying the larger one, but I still had a lot of the leadership from the larger one, you know, yeah. floating around. I think, you know, if I look at that today, there's a couple of things that I think went well, right? One is... We didn't expect everybody to fall in line on day one, yep. right? But we did expect everybody to be one company on day one. And I think, you know, that it could have been very, it could have been a very slow and agonizing process had we not tried to bring the companies together immediately, but we didn't follow that. We did bring the companies together immediately. We insisted on, we were one company. We immediately embarked on building a shared vision of what we were building, a shared purpose for why we were building it, and shared values. And I think that happened immediately coming out of the gate. It literally started on the day we started the trend, the, the acquisition. I think that um, that was really big. And I think the other thing was just really trying to provide full transparency. We were going to have to make a lot of hard decisions. Yeah. Um, but to try to provide full transparency about why we were doing the things we were and what the upside to the business was going to be and individually going to be. The reality is this was going to be a tremendous career opportunity for everybody in that company. Yeah. And it was up to the individual to decide if, you know, what they were going to make of that. And I think the other, the other part too, is we tried to give, not everybody was going to buy in. There were people that we never got bought in. But what we also tried to do is give them a soft exit um, mm-hmm. if they weren't, right? There was no harm and no shame in saying, this is not for me. I'm right. coming out of a 30-year-old lifestyle business that was right. very comfortable. That's There is no shame in saying, that's what I want. This is no longer the place for me. So I'm going to opt out. 
It's a perfectly valid reason and trying to give them as much of a soft landing as possible to make it easy for people to opt out. Right. Because Um, the, the, your employees are going to feel the, you had big investors now, pretty significant um, sources of funding that are expecting a very specific amount of growth over a certain time. So there's no way to hide that from them. Right. No, you can't. Yeah. You can't. We had to. We had to be fully transparent about what those expectations yeah. are, but also transparent about this is not going to be the place for everybody. It's just not. Yeah, and that's okay. Like, let's just let's just be honest with each other, right? And let's decide who's in and who's out. Let's do that quickly. And if you're out, let's let's try to give you get you to a place where you're gonna you're gonna love your work again. So you had some really good leaders there, um, like as an outsider looking in um you went through this kind of period of like you said of turbulence but within very short period of time you got to this point where and i i'd been to i'd been out there they i worked with outmatch they were a customer of mine so we were working with them on the marketing side not directly with greg but with the cmo there um and you as a team got this company to a place where it was just an amazing group of people with Mm -hmm. a very clear shared vision and passion. And from being like this group of people that were put together, like randomly. And now you have this amazing one driven, excited, like very um, admirable culture. Like, how did you do that? Like, how did you get it there? Because it's one thing to get people in an acquisition to be like, ah, we're working together. It's great. Right. This is good. We have a good job to, I believe in this and we are all on the same page. That was amazing to watch. Yeah. I mean, you had to, I think, well, first of all, we rebranded. So we had checked.com, which is a company that I founded, acquired a business called Assess Systems. And then we rebranded the company as Outmatch with, like I said, with, new vision, new purpose, new values. We were, by all intents and purposes, a new company that we were building yep. together, right? And I think that that message resonated because it was very real, right? We, we were not, we're going to honor where we all came from, but, but we weren't that anymore, right? right. We were truly building something um, groundbreaking together. And, you know, I think that, but it was that sense of shared purpose, right? It was that sense of, hey, we're going out and we're going to fundamentally change people's lives. Because again, we were a, we were a, a technology that provides talent screening for large companies. We were going to go out and fundamentally change people's lives because we were going to make sure that companies are hiring the best possible talent and people understand if this is the home for them. But like if that company yeah. is the home for them. That's what our technology was really enabling us to do. Um, it became very mission driven. You know, everything was yeah. about the mission that we were that we were on, and there were, you know, both from a business standpoint and from sort of a societal standpoint. I think it became really powerful, um, you know, and it and it just kept taking on a life of its own. I think we had, you know, we we and by this point we had identified those leaders that were really focused on the shared vision and we had we had helped those leaders who weren't really going to be part of that 
uh, yeah. because they, they didn't want to be, we, we sort of yeah. helped them kind of exit the business. Um, so, and, and that was really it, right? It, it was like you had fresh leadership that was really energized about the direction that we were going with this on the shared, on the shared journey together. Um, and, you know, culture is a funny thing, right? That when you start to turn that flywheel, it gets more and more and more powerful. Um, yeah. It also goes the other direction, right? Yeah. And um, so I think that more than anything, that's, that's, that's really what did it. We just tried to, we just tried to communicate constantly and make sure that we're all on that journey together. So you do this and then you get to this point and then you start buying companies. So like you acquired two companies pretty close to each other. Mm -hmm. When they came in, it was almost like they enhanced what you already had. That's what it felt like as an observer, right? It's like, yeah, all of a sudden you went from like this amazing group of people to even better and like inclusive. Yeah. And then another one like that, like that is so like, you've been through a lot of acquisitions over Mm -hmm. this past, you know, in this journey. Like, how did that happen? Like, how did you get him to be like, it's, I don't want to say seamless, but it was like, it was like, they wanted to be part of this. Because yeah. of the relationships that we had built, right? And it's to say it goes back to that funding story, right? We were we were buying companies that were in our space that we had developed that we had been developing relationships for for years. Yeah, um, you know the CEOs of these businesses became personal friends. We we shared yeah. a very common vision, right? We were going yeah. about it in different ways. They weren't direct competitors; they were complementary. But um, but you know we became we had become friends with, you know, a shared vision. And I think, you know, where that ability to say, you know, Hey, this makes more sense to go at this together than it does individually. Um, And then, and we invested a lot of money. Like we put a lot of money behind this process. Right. And you, I think it's one of the things I'm, I'm super proud of when I think back on it is that, you know, we would take, we acquired a company in Guadalajara, Mexico. Yep. Um, Mexico City and Guadalajara. And they're about 35, 40 employees or so. We flew every single one of them up to Dallas within a week, I think, or two weeks of the transaction closing. Because what we wanted to do is just give everybody that opportunity to kind of literally and figuratively embrace what we had just done, right? As a as a business together. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it became infectious, right? That excitement just built in terms of yeah. look at look at the way that this is going. And we had done that a couple of times. It's an area that, you know, those investments seemed somewhat crazy at the time. I mean, we would spend a hundred thousand dollars in travel just to bring people up to or more, probably two hundred thousand, you know, to bring people up to Dallas from all over the world um, when we did these acquisitions. But it it would the you, you just, you can't even measure the ROI of that, right? And it wasn't even about ROI. It was just about the well, Because when, when you have those hard questions about like, what do you do with this piece of technology that maybe someone's really kind of connected to and they've had a, they've had a chance to actually build a relationship with someone, the conversation's a lot easier because you know them and you feel more comfortable with them, right? I mean, I, that's a what real, I observed. It was totally. a lot easier to say, right. hey, our sales process is a little different than yours. And this is what we're doing when you spend time with them. And they're like, oh, that's, you know, so-and-so. And, 
you know, that person's into the same thing I'm into. And we talked and we kind of made a connection. Right. Uh, because it made was it trust, a lot easier. Right. There yeah. was trust. It wasn't a Zoom relationship. It was a, right. It was a real relationship. Um, yeah. Because it does, you know, again, you're going to have to, whenever you're doing MA like that, you're going to have to make hard decisions. Not yeah. everybody's going to be super thrilled with whatever, you know, with every decision that you make. Um, but if people trust each other and they see the big picture, it becomes a lot easier to, to have those hard conversations. Yeah. So just to finish the story, um, you went through this process, got to the point, private equity shows up. It's time to sell. You, you have some exits for some of your investors that have been kind of around for a while. Um, tell me about that. Like, what yeah, again, that my like? timing was, that's what you're trying to do. Like our goal when we start this is to get to that moment where you're like, Hey, I actually have an exit, right? I'm there's some yeah. definitive. Yeah. This, I mean, again, in, in the, in the vein of impeccable timing, we closed the transaction with a large private equity firm to acquire a majority of the business. Um, on March 1st of 2020. So if you remember what the world looked like on March 1st of 2020. Um, it's like 15 days before everyone shut the doors and went yeah, inside. It was, it was like five or six days, I think. Yeah. I, I went down to Dallas. I live in Colorado. I, I commuted to Dallas for all these years and went down to Dallas, went down to our, our corporate headquarters down there. And I went down there with our private equity, uh, new private equity partners, and we had done a big company-wide party and all the stuff. So on February or March first was like a Friday, I think. So it was like that following Monday yep. or Tuesday. And, and then uh, the Wednesday or Thursday of that next week, it was like everyone's. I flew the home, doors. Um, thinking I'd be back down to Dallas in my normal routine a couple of days later, and uh, it was July when I went back to Dallas for the first time because. I had left a bunch of stuff in the office um, and that was it. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Um, you Pretty know, good timing actually. Just I mean, good. not bad. It'd yeah. be harder to close that deal if it was supposed to close in April. It would have been harder a month later. That's for sure. Um, so you got, you got a little luck back from the beginning where I you guess. started when there was no capital and then you closed before maybe people started to worry. And I know for software companies, it, it was. It wasn't as bad. I mean, it, it, everyone reacted. We had to to well, plan we, for what we happened. No, right. And that was yeah. the problem. That like suddenly we were forced into this world of we had just brought on new brand new investors. We had a lot of fresh yeah. capital in the business. Um, we had absolutely no idea what was going to happen. We we yeah. were this super tight culture, right? Like we like yeah. we've talked about. And suddenly we we're sending everybody home. Everybody, everyone's yeah. remote for the first time ever. Like we were a real office culture. Yeah. And everybody's home. And we, and oh, and by the way, our clients are retail, restaurant, hospitality, and airlines. <laughs> yeah, great. So, like, if you tried to position yourself in a worse place in a global pandemic, I, I don't know how you would have done it. Right. And <laughs> so, so, like, we we're no not idea. hiring, we're, we're furloughing employees right we don't now. Even know, I mean, there, there are airlines yeah. that didn't even know if they're going to be in business, right? Like, yeah. we don't even know if we can fly our planes. Restaurants can't even open their doors, right? And, you know, so That's we're probably... in the situation and, you know, it was, it was crazy, but, um, our private equity, uh, partners, name of them is, uh, name of them is Rubicon technology partners, a terrific firm based in Boulder. Um, yeah. and, um, you know, this just shows you the power of a great financial partner. I mean, the first thing that they did is they said, protect the people, keep them safe, protect 
whatever, do what you need to do to, to be a good partner to our client and that our clients. And that meant in cases taking three-year contracts and just erasing them in yeah. some cases or cutting their pricing to 50% or whatever that took. Yeah. And, you know, Rubicon's approach was we're just going to manage our way to the, we're going to figure out where the bottom is together and then we're going to rebuild from there. And, yeah. and they, you know, they were a, an unbelievable partner um, through that time. And not only did they do that, but um, then they also poured capital into the business to go start doing a bunch of M&A again at that time. I think during that period of time between around June of 2020 to when I wound down my uh, CEO role in October of 22, um, I think we had done seven transactions, seven M- seven M&A transactions, uh, seven so, more. So, I mean, it was yeah, like six or seven. So it was crazy. We, again, you'll get to know us during this whole period when we interview other people, because I'm sure we'll be sharing some of the our stories indirectly. Um, but this has been great. Um, I would say some of the tips that I've learned actually from knowing you over the years, but that you talked about is like, you know, obviously when you're funding, get to know the people early, right? And don't don't wait and go try to fund. Obviously talk to people early. You had relationships with private equity before you're even on the radar of those companies uh, or those entities really at early. And that actually helped you get to kind of where you are today. Um, and then not, don't be afraid to be, you know, build those relationships internally, but also within your... Um, industry and and talk to your competitors and and then that helped with getting those really good companies when you actually got to that point i'm sure when you first met those companies you weren't in a place to even consider acquiring them but then right it it made sense later and you had a relationship that made that much easier totally. uh, to to continue that culture that you had built totally. um those are some in, important things um anything else like you know, we have like a, a couple more minutes. Like, what did you learn about yourself um, during that time that that allowed you to become successful during that journey? What What about yourself did you work? Like, what self aware thing did you learn during that process? You know, figuring out what you're good at and figuring out what you're not good at. I think. As you lead a really fast-growing company, we had gone from basically a PowerPoint presentation, no employees, to about 300 people globally, and you know, tens of millions of in revenue. And um, in doing that, I think you know, if you're going to evolve as a leader, you really had to figure out what you were good at and what you weren't. And I, and I think what I realized about myself is, you know, I'm a I'm a founder at heart. I'm a I'm a sales and marketing person at heart and I'm a deal maker at heart. I love doing the M&A. I love putting together transactions. What I am not is a great operator. Um, you know, I am not, uh, you know, the person to go out and do, you know, massive organization of large scale projects and things like that. I mean, yep. I can force my way through it, but I'm not good at it and I'm not going to enjoy it. And Finding people who are uh, was was really critical, and I think you know ultimately that is sort of exactly you know that's what led me and 
around October of 2022 to say, I'm not the guy to lead this business anymore. Um, yeah. Because it, because it requires that skill set, and I don't have that skill set. And I can be yeah. more helpful from the outside than I can be from the inside now. Um, you got to really figure out where you're good at. You can't force your way through this stuff. It, you know, especially when the company starts to really grow because, man, is it obvious. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And unpleasant if you're, you know, if you're, you're trying, trying to, to force do yourself it, in what, the world. Right? do something you're, you're not really good at. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't enjoy, right? I mean, that's yeah. the thing. That's like, true too. You got to survive all that stuff by waking up in the morning and having fun, right? Well, the, the, look, the stress of a the stress of a growth company is too much, right? The anxiety and the stress it provokes, the natural anxiety and natural stress it provokes are too big. If you're also not enjoying what you're doing because it's not where your natural skills are taking you, man, it just compounds not, that anxiety. Right? Not going to work out. It, yeah. No. No. Yeah. It's not good. So no one when when to say, hey, that's that's enough for me, right? No, knowing when. No. Knowing what or someone else needs to do or this. getting yourself like, surrounded by those people if yeah. you get yourself in a position yeah. and making sure you're surrounded by those people who can who can complement who can complement those weaknesses that you may have with their own strengths. Awesome. This is great. Thank you so much, Greg. This was awesome. Um yeah, thank you. You you said this to me, but I'm sure everyone will know if they listen to this podcast where to reach you, how to get access to you. Yeah, I mean, the easiest. Easiest way is on Twitter. It's uh, Evergreen MEP. So it's the word Evergreen. And then uh, the MEP stands for Mountain Equity Partners. So Evergreen Mountain Equity Partners, Evergreen MEP on uh, on Twitter's the uh, the best way to reach me. Cool. Um, and uh, we will probably do a retake of this, of what we did before when we were screwing around and making it funny um, <laughs> so that you can listen to that version, which is something that keeps Greg and I laughing constantly in text, but nice. All right. Cool. Well, all right. We'll, be, we'll talk. And we've got, uh, we've got more episodes coming up here yep. where it's not me and Peter talking to each other. It's yeah. actually real people. Um, not Great. Real us. people, real people that are doing real yeah, things. Real founders that are, are real, uh, are doing real exciting things. So not like two guys from upstate New York that went to like unknown university, <laughs> Siena college. Sure. Actually, it's a great place. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yes. All right. All right. Thank you. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, see you in the next episode.